Welcome to CSU 29 Machine Learning. Uh, some of you know that this is a class I taught at Stanford for a long time, and this is often the class that um, I most look forward to teaching each year because this is where we've helped, I think, several generations of Stanford students become experts in machine learning, go out, build many of their products and services and startups that I'm sure many of you, or probably all of you, are using uh, uh, today. Um, so what I want to do today was spend some time talking over uh, logistics and then uh, spend some time you know giving you a beginning of an intro talk a little bit about machine learning so about 229 um, you know all of you have been reading about AI in the news uh, about machine learning in the news um, and you've probably heard me or others say AI is the new electricity uh, much as the rise of electricity about a hundred years ago transformed every major industry <laughs> I think AI, or really, we call it machine learning, but the rest of the world seems to call it AI. You know, um, machine learning and, and AI and deep learning will change the world. And I hope that through 229, uh, we'll give you the tools you need so that you can be many of these future titans of industries, that you can be one to go out and build, you know, help the large tech companies do the amazing things they do, or build your own startup, or go into some other industry, go, go transform healthcare, or go transform transportation, or go build a self-driving car, um, and do all of these things that um, after this class, I think you'll be able to do. You know, um, the majority of students applying, the, the demand for AI skills, the demand for machine learning skills is so vast. I think you all know that. Um, and I think it's because machine learning has advanced so rapidly in the last few years that there are so many opportunities um, to apply learning algorithms, right? Both in industry as well as in academia. I think today we have um, the English department professors trying to apply learning algorithms to understand history better. Uh, we have lawyers trying to apply machine learning to process legal documents. Uh, and off campus, every company, both the tech companies as well as a lot of, lot of companies that you wouldn't consider tech companies, everything from manufacturing companies to healthcare companies to logistics companies are also trying to apply machine learning. So I think that um, uh, uh, if you look at it on a, on a factual basis, the number of people doing very valuable machine learning projects today is much greater than it was six months ago. And six months ago is much greater than it was 12 months ago. And the amount of value, the amount of exciting and meaningful work being done in machine learning is, is, is very strongly going up. Um, and I think that given the rise of, you know, the, the, the amount of data we have, as well as the new machine learning tools that we have, um, it will be a long time before we run out of opportunities, you know, before, before society as a whole has enough people with a machine learning skill set. Um, so just as maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago was a good time to start working on this internet thing, and a lot of people that started working on the internet like 20 years ago had fantastic careers, I think today is a wonderful time to jump to machine learning uh, and, and, and the number of, and the opportunities for you to do unique things that no one, is, no one else is doing, right? The opportunity for you to go to logistics company and find an exciting way to apply machine learning uh, will be very high because chances are that logistics company has no one else even working on this because, you know, they probably can't, they, they may not be able to hire a fantastic Stanford student as a graduate of CS229, right? Because there, there just aren't a lot of CS229 graduates around. Um, so what I want to do today is um, do a quick intro, talk a little about logistics, 
um, and then uh, we'll, we'll spend the second half of the day you know, giving an overview and, and talk a little bit more about machine learning. Okay, and uh, oh, and I apologize. I, I think that uh, this room, according to that sign there, seats what three hundred something students. Uh, I th uh, we have uh, uh, like uh, not quite eight hundred people enrolled in this class. Um, so if there are people outside, and, and all of the classes are uh, recorded, broadcast on SCPD, uh, they usually the videos usually made av available same day. So for those of you that can't get into the room, my apologies. Um, there, there were some years um, where even I had trouble getting into the room, but I'm glad <laughs> they let me in. Uh, but, but, um, but, but hopefully you can watch, you, you better watch all of these things online shortly. Oh, I see, yes, yeah. I don't know, uh, it's a bit complicated. Yeah. I, yeah, thank you, I think it's okay. Yeah, I, I, we could, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe for the next few classes, people can squeeze in and use up the NTCs, but for now it might be too complicated. So quick intros. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I should have introduced myself. My name is Andrew. Uh, 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 and I want to introduce some of the rest of the teaching team as well. Is a class coordinator. Um, she has been playing this role for many years now and helps uh, keep the trains run on time and make sure that everything in class happens when it's supposed to. Uh, uh, so 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 should be. A, and then uh, we're thrilled to. Have do you guys want to stand up? Uh, be the co-head TAs, uh, our respective, the PhD students working with me. Uh, and so bring a lot of um, uh, uh, technical experience, uh, technical experience in machine learning as well as practical know-how on how to actually make these things work. And with the large class that we have, we have a large TA team. Um, I, maybe I won't introduce all of the TAs here today, but you meet many of them throughout this quarter. But the TAs' expertise span everything from computer vision to natural language processing to computer technology to robotics. And so um, through this quarter, as you work on your class projects, I hope that you get a lot of uh, help and advice and mentoring from the TAs, uh, all of which, all of whom have deep expertise, not just in machine learning, but often in a specific vertical application area um, of machine learning. So depending on what your projects, we try to match you to a TA that can give you advice uh, uh, that most relevant to whatever project you end up working on. Um, so, you know, go of this class. I hope that after the next 10 weeks, uh, you will be an expert in machine learning. Um, it turns out that, uh, uh, you know, um, and, and I hope that after this class, you'll be able to go out and uh, build very meaningful machine learning applications, uh, either in an academic setting where uh, hopefully you can apply it to your problems in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and uh, English, and law, and, um, uh, and, and, and education, and all of this wonderful work that happens on campus, uh, as well as after you graduate from Stanford, to be able to apply it to whatever jobs you find. Um, one of the things I find very exciting about machine learning is that it's no longer a sort of pure tech company only kind of thing, right? I think that many years ago, um, machine learning, it was like a thing that, you know, the computer science department would do and that the elite AI companies like Google and Facebook and Baidu and Microsoft would do. Uh, but now it is so pervasive that even companies that are not traditional tech companies see a huge need to apply these tools. And I find a lot of the most exciting work uh, these days 
Um, and, and, and maybe some of you guys know my history, so I'm a little bit biased, right? I, I led the Google Brain team, which helped Google transform from what was already a great company 10 years ago to today, which is you know, a great AI company. And then I also led the AI group at Baidu and you know, led the company's technology and strategy to help Baidu also transform from what was already a great company many years ago to today, arguably China's greatest AI company. So having led the, you know, built the teams that led the AI transformations of two large tech companies, I, I, I feel like that's a great thing to do, uh, but even beyond tech, I think that um, there's a lot of exciting work to do as well to help other industries, to help other sectors uh, embrace machine learning and use these tools effectively. Um, but after this class, I hope that each one of you will be well qualified to get a job at a shiny tech company and do machine learning there, or go into one of these other industries and do very valuable machine learning projects there. Um, and in addition, if any of you um, are taking this class with the primary goal of uh, being able to do research uh, in machine learning, you know, so, so actually some of you I know are PhD students, um, I hope that this class will also leave you well equipped to um, be able to read and understand research papers, uh, as well as uh, you know, be qualified to start pushing forward um, the state of the art. Right. Um, so, let's see. Um, so, today, uh, uh, so, so just as machine learning is evolving rapidly, um, the whole teaching team, we've been uh, constantly updating CS229 as well. So um, it's actually very interesting. I feel like the pace of progress in machine learning has accelerated. So it, it actually feels like that uh, the amount we change the class year over year has been increasing over time. So, so if your friends that took the class last year, you know, things are a little bit different this year because we're, we're constantly updating the class to keep up with what feels like still accelerating progress in the whole field of machine learning. Um, so, so, oh, so, so there's some logistical changes. For example, uh, uh, we've gone from a, we used to hand out paper copies of handouts, uh, but we're, we're trying to make this class digital only. Um, but let me talk a little bit about uh, prerequisites as well as in case your friends have taken this class before, some of the differences for this year, right? Um, so prerequisites. Um, we are going to assume that um, all of you have a knowledge of basic computer skills and principles. Uh, so, you know, big old notation, queues, stacks, binary trees, uh, hopefully you understand what all of those concepts are. And uh, assume that all of you have a basic familiarity with um, uh, probability, right? That hopefully you know what's a random variable, what's the expected value of a random variable, what's the variance of a random variable. Um, and if, for some of you, maybe especially the SCPD students taking those remotely, if it's been, you know, some number of years since you lost at a probability and statistics class, uh, we will have uh, review sessions uh, on, on, on Fridays uh, where we'll go over some of this prerequisite material as well. But, but so hopefully you know what a random variable is, what the expected value is, but if you're a little bit fuzzy on those concepts, we'll, we'll go over them again um, at, a, at a discussion section uh, on Friday. Um, also assume that you're familiar with basic linear algebra. So hopefully that you know what's a matrix, what's a vector, how to multiply two matrices or multiply a matrix in a vector. Um, if you know what is an eigenvector, then that's even better. Uh, if you're not quite sure what an eigenvector is, we'll go over it, but, but, you, 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 but uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go over it, I guess. Uh, um, and then um, a large part of this class uh, uh, is um, having you practice these ideas uh, through the homeworks, uh, as well as I'll mention later 
a uh, open-ended project. And so, um, one uh, there we, we've actually uh, until now we used to use uh, MATLAB uh, and Octave for their programming assignments, uh, but this year we're trying to shift the programming assignments to uh, Python. Um, and so, um, I think for a long time. Uh, even today, you know, I sometimes use Octave to prototype because the syntax of Octave is so nice and just run you know, very simple experiments very quickly. But I think the machine learning world um, is, you know, really migrating, I think, from um, MATLAB Python world to increasing, excuse me, MATLAB Octave world to increasingly a Python maybe, and, and then eventually for production, Java, C++ kind of world. And so uh, we're rewriting a lot of the assignments for this class this quarter. Um, have, been, have been driving that process uh, so that so that this course uh, you could do more of the assignments, uh, uh, maybe most, maybe all of the assignments in um, Python uh, NumPy instead. Um, now, a note on the owner code: um, we ask that you know, we we actually encourage you to form study groups. Uh, so so you know I've been um, fascinated by education for a long time. It's been a long time studying education and pedagogy and how instructors like us can help support you to learn more efficiently. And one of the lessons I've learned from the educational research literature is that for highly technical classes like this, if you form study groups, uh, you will probably have an easier time, right? So, so CS309, we go for the highly technical material. There's a lot of math, some of the programs are hard. And if you have a group of friends to study with, uh, you probably have an easier time uh, uh, because you can ask each other questions and work together and help each other. Um, where we ask you to draw the line, or what we ask you to, to, to do relative to the standard uh, honor code is, um, we ask that you do the homework problems by yourself, right? Uh, and, and, and more specifically, um, it's okay to discuss the homework problems with friends, but if you, um, but after discussing homework problems with friends, we ask you to go back and write up the solutions by yourself uh, without referring to notes that you know you and your friends had developed together. Okay. Um, the classes on the code is written clearly on the class um, handouts posted digitally on the website. So if you ever have any questions about what is allowed collaboration and what isn't allowed, uh, please refer to that written document on the class website where we describe this more clearly. But um, all the respect for the Stanford on the code as well as for uh, uh, you know, for, for, for students kind of doing their own work, we ask you to basically do your own work uh, for the, um, it's okay to discuss it, but after discussing homework problems with friends, ultimately we ask you to write up your problems by yourself so that the homework submissions rep reflect your own work, right? Um, and I care about this because it turns out that uh, having CS229, you know, CS229 is one of those classes that employers recognize. Uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but there have been, um, companies that have put up job ads that say stuff like, so long as you got, so long as you completed CS229, we guarantee you get an interview, right? I've, I've seen stuff like that. <laughs> and so I think, you know, in order to, to maintain that sanctity of what it means to be a CS229 completer, I think um, I ask that all of you sort of really do your own work um, uh, or stay within the bounds of accepted, of acceptable collaboration relative to the code. Um, let's see. And I think that um, uh, if, uh, you know what, this is, um, yeah. And I think that uh, one of the best parts of CS229, it turns out, is, um, excuse me. So, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm gonna try. 
looking for my mouse cursor. Sorry about that. My, my, my displays are not mirrored. So this is a little bit awkward. Um, so one of the best parts of the class is, oh shoot, sorry about that. All right, never mind, I won't do this. Um, you, could do that, you could do it yourself online later. Um, I started using I started using Firefox recently in addition to Chrome. Anyway, just, just to mix up. Um, one of the best parts of um, the class is um, the class project. Um, and so, you know, one of the goals of the class is to leave you well qualified to do a meaningful machine learning project. And so, uh, one of the best ways to make sure you have that skill set is through this class, and hopefully with the help of some of our TAs. Uh, we want to support you to work on a small group to complete a meaningful machine learning project. Um, and so one thing I hope you start doing you know, later today uh, is to start brainstorming, maybe of your friends, um, some, of the, some of the class projects you might work on. Uh, and the most common class project that you know, people do in CSUG9 is to pick an area, pick an application that excites you and to apply machine learning to it and see if you can build a good machine learning system for some application area. And so um, if you go to the course website, you know, cs229.stanford.edu and look at previous year's projects, you, you, you see machine learning projects applied to pretty much, you know, pretty much every imaginable application under the sun. Everything from, I don't know, diagnosing cancer to creating art to uh, lots of um, uh, projects applied to other areas of engineering, uh, applying to application areas in double E or mechanical engineering or civil engineering or earthquake engineering and so on, uh, to applying it to understand literature, to applying it to, um, uh, I don't know. And, 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 and so uh, if you look at the previous year's projects, uh, many of which are posted on the course website, you could use that as inspiration to see the types of projects students complete, completing this class are able to do. And I also encourage you to um, uh, you can look at that for inspiration, you know, to, to get a sense of what you'll be able to do at the conclusion of this class, and also see if uh, looking at previous year's projects gives you inspiration for what um, you might do yourself. Uh, so we ask you to, we, we invite you, I guess, to do class projects in small groups, and so um, after class today, also encourage you to start making friends in the class, both for the purpose of forming study groups as well as for the purpose of maybe finding a small group to do a class project with. Um, uh, we ask you to form project groups of um, up to size three. Uh, uh, most project groups end up being size two or three. Um, if you insist on doing it by yourself, right, without any partners, that's actually okay too. You're welcome to do that. But, uh, but, but I think often, you know, having one or two others to work with may give you an easier time. And uh, for projects of exceptional scope, if you have a very, very large project that just cannot be done by three people, um, uh, sometimes, you know, let us know and we're open to, uh, with, with, to some project groups of size four, but our expectation, but we do hold projects, you know, with a group of four to a higher standard than projects with size one to three, right? So, so what that means is that if your project 
team size is uh, one, two, or three persons. The grading is one criteria. If your project group is uh, bigger than three persons, we use a stricter criteria when it comes to grading class projects. Okay. Um, oh, and that 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 reminds me. Um, uh, I know that. Uh, let's see. So for most of you, since it's, since this started at nine thirty a.m. on the first day of the quarter. Uh, for many of you, this may be, this is probably your very first class at Stanford. For how many of you, this is your very first class at Stanford? Wow, cool. Okay, awesome. Great. Welcome to Stanford. Uh, and if someone next to you just raised their hand, uh, actually, ra raise your hand again. So I hope that, you know, maybe after class today, if someone next to you raise their hand, uh, help welcome them to Stanford and then say hi and introduce yourself and make friends afterward. Yeah. Cool. Nice, nice to see so many of you here. Um, All right, so um, just a bit more on logistics. Uh, so um, let's see, in addition to the main lectures that we'll have here uh, on Mondays and Wednesdays, um, CS239 also has discussion sections uh, on held on Fridays that are, and everything we do, including the, see, all the, all the lectures and discussion sections are recorded and broadcast through SCPD, uh, through the online website. Um, and one of, and uh, discussion sections uh, are taught uh, usually by the TAs on Fridays, and attendance at discussion sections is optional. Uh, and what, what I mean is that um, you, you know, you, 100% promise there won't be material on the midterm that will sneak in from the discussion section, so it's 100% optional. Uh, and you will be able to do all the homeworks and the projects without attending the discussion section. But what we'll use the discussion section for, uh, for the first three discussion sections, so you know, this week, next week, uh, the week after that, we'll use the discussion sections to go over prerequisite material in greater depth. So uh, go over uh, linear algebra, basic problem statistics, uh, teach a little bit about Python, NumPy, in case you're less familiar with those programming frameworks. Uh, so we'll do that for the first few weeks. And then for the discussion sections that are held later this quarter, we'll usually use them to go over more advanced optional material. Uh, for example, um, CS239, a lot of the learning algorithms you, you, you hear about in the class rely on convex optimization algorithms, but we want to focus the class on the learning algorithms and spend less time on convex optimization. So if you want to come and hear about more advanced concepts in convex optimization, we'll defer that to the discussion section. Uh, and then there, there are a few other advanced topics, uh, hidden Markov models, time series, uh, that we're planning to defer to the um, Friday discussion sections. Okay. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, cool. And, uh, oh, and um, uh, final bit of logistics. Um, uh, for, there'll be, there are digital tools that some of you will have seen, but um, for this class, we'll drive a lot of the discussion through the uh, online website Piazza. How, how many of you have used Piazza before? Okay, cool. Most of, oh, wow, all of you? That's pretty amazing. Okay, um, good. So, so uh, online discussion board for those of you that haven't seen it before, but um, definitely encourage you to uh, participate actively on Piazza and also to answer other students' questions. Right? I think that one of the best ways to learn uh, as well as contribute you know, back to the class as a whole is if you see someone else ask a question on Piazza, if you jump in and help answer that. Uh, uh, that, that often helps you and helps your classmates. So I strongly encourage you 
to do that. Uh, for those of you that have a private question, you know, sometimes we have students um, uh, reaching out to us to, with, with a personal matter uh, or something that you know, is not appropriate to share on the public forum, in which case you're welcome to email us at the class email address as well. Uh, and we also, and, and the class email address, the teaching staff's email address on the course website, you can find it there and contact us. But for anything technical or anything reasonable to share at the class, uh, which includes most technical questions and most logistical questions. Right, questions like, you know, gee, can you confirm what date is the midterm or, or you know, what happens? Uh, uh, can, can you confirm when's the handout for this going on and so on? For questions that are not personal or private in nature, uh, strongly encourage you to post on Piazza rather than emailing us because uh, statistically you actually get a faster answer uh, posting, it on, post, posting on Piazza than, than you know, if, if you wait for one of us to respond to you. Um, and we'll be using Gradescope as well um, uh, to, for, for online grading. Right? And, and if, you, if you don't know what Gradescope is, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll send you links and show you how to use it later. Um, oh, and uh, uh, again, relative to one, one last logistical thing to plan for, um, unlike uh, previous um, uh, years where we taught CS229. Uh, so we're constantly updating the syllabus, right? The technical content to try to show you the latest machine learning algorithms. Uh, and uh, uh, the two big logistical changes we're making this year, I guess, one is uh, Python instead of MATLAB. And the other one is uh, um, instead of having a, uh, a midterm exam, you know, that's a timed midterm, uh, we're planning to uh, have a take-home midterm uh, this quarter instead. So. I, I don't know, some, some people just breathed in sharply when I said that. I don't know what that means. Was that shock or happiness? I don't know. Okay. Don't worry, midterms are fun. You, 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 you love it. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's it, for the, that's it for the logistical aspects. Um, let me check with you. And so let me, let me check if there are any questions. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, on Canvas, the courses offered every quarter, are all the renditions identical? Oh, um. Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, let's see, I think it's offered in spring. Uh, and one other person. Uh, uh, yes, and are teaching it. So someone else is teaching it in spring quarter. Uh, um, uh, I actually did not know it was going to be offered in winter. No, not in winter. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think a great guy and teaching it uh, in. Uh, sorry, can you pronounce it right? Uh, teaching it in uh, spring, uh, uh, and I don't think it's offered in winter. Yeah. Cool. Okay, that's uh, will the session sessions be recorded? Yes, they will be. Oh, and by the way, if, if, if you wonder why I'm recording, the, I'm repeating the question, I know it feels weird. I'm recording for the microphone so that, so that people watching this at home can hear the question. But uh, both the lectures and the discussion sections uh, will, be, will be recorded and put on the website. Uh, maybe the one thing we do that's not recorded and broadcast are the office hours, right? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, but uh, I think uh, this year, um, uh, we have a uh, 60 hour, how many hours? Uh, 60 office hours per week, right, yeah. So, so, so hopefully, I, I just, again, we're, we're constantly trying to improve the class. In previous years, one of the feedback we got was that 
the office hours are really crowded. So, so we have 60, 60 hours of work, about 60 office hour slots per week this year. That, that seems like a lot. So hopefully if you need to track down one of us, track down the tier to get help, hopefully that'll, that'll make it easier for you to do so. Go ahead. Say it again. Well, Oh, well, logistical things like when homeworks are due be covered in lectures. Uh, we have, um, yes, uh, so we have uh, four planned homeworks. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and if you, go to the, if you go to the course website and click on the syllabus link, uh, that has a calendar with when each homework assignment is called and when it will be due. Uh, so four homeworks and uh, project proposal due a few weeks from now and, uh, uh, and then final projects due at the end of the quarter. Uh, but all the all the exact dates are listed on the course website. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, sure. Yes. Difference between this class and two twenty nine A. Let me think how to answer that. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I know. I was debating earlier this morning how to answer that. Business asked that a few times. Um, so I think that what has happened at Stanford is that the volume of demand for machine learning education is just right skyrocketing because I think everyone sees, everyone wants to learn this stuff. And so, um, uh, uh, so we've been, so the computer science department has been trying to grow the number of machine learning offerings we have. Um, uh, we actually capped the enrollment of CS239A at a relatively low number at 100 students. So I actually don't want to encourage too many of you to sign up because uh, uh, I think we might be hitting the enrollment cap already. So, so please don't all sign up for C239A because um, uh, we, 239A does not have the capacity this quarter. But uh, CS239A is a um, much less mathematical and uh, much more applied, uh, 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 a relatively more applied version of machine learning. And uh, so I, I guess I know, I'm teaching CS239A, CS230, and CS239 this quarter. Of the three, CS239 is the most mathematical. Um, it is a little bit less applied than CS239A, which is more applied machine learning, and CS230, which is deep learning. My advice to students is that um, CS239, uh, CS239A, let me write this down. I think I'm... So CS239A uh, is taught in the flipped classroom format, which means that uh, students taking it will mainly watch videos um, on the Coursera website and do a lot of uh, programming exercises and then meet for weekly discussion sections. Uh, but it's a smaller class with captain enrollment. Um, I, I would advise you that um, if you feel ready for CS239 and CS230 to do those, uh, but uh, CS239, you know, because of the math we do, this is, a, this is a very heavy workload and pretty challenging class. And so if you're not sure if you're ready for CS239, uh, CS239A may be a good thing to, to, to take first. Um, uh, and then um, CS239 and CS239A cover a broader range of machine learning algorithms. Uh, and CS230 is more focused on deep learning algorithms specifically. Right, which is a much narrow set of algorithms, but it is you know one of the hottest areas of deep learning. 
uh, there is not that much overlap in content between the three classes. So if you actually take all three, you learn relatively different things from all of them. Uh, in the past, we've had students simultaneously take 229 and 229A, and there is a little bit of overlap. You know, they, they do kind of cover related algorithms, but from different points of view. So, so some people actually take multiple of these classes at the same time. Um, uh, but 229A is more applied, a bit more you know, practical know-how, hands-on, and so on, and, and, and uh, uh, much less mathematical. Uh, and, and CS230 is also less mathematical, more applied, more about kind of getting it to work, whereas CS229A, um, we do much more mathematical derivations in CS229. Cool. Any other questions? Sure. Yeah, yes. Uh, someone had a hand. So, uh, uh, why don't you say that what I would generally prefer students not do that in the interest of time, but what, what do you want? I just want to know how many people enrolled in 239 and 230. Oh, I see. Sure, go for it. Who's enrolled in 239 and 230? Oh, not that many of you. Interesting. That's actually really interesting. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I just didn't want to set a presence of students using this as a forum to run surveys, but that was that was a, <laughs> that was a, that was an interesting question. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. All right. Uh, and by the way, I think uh, you know just one, one thing about Stanford is um, the AI world, machine learning world. AI is bigger than machine learning, right? And machine learning is bigger than deep learning. Um, one of the great things about being a Stanford student is you can, and I think should, take multiple classes, right? I think that, you know, CS229 has for many years been the core of the machine learning world at Stanford, uh, but even beyond CS229, it's worth your while to take multiple classes and gain multiple perspectives. So, so if you want to uh, be really effective, you know, after you graduate from Stanford, you do want to be an expert in machine learning. You do want to be an expert in deep learning. Uh, and you probably want to know probably in statistics, maybe you want to know a bit of complex optimization, maybe you want to know a bit more about reinforcement learning, know a little bit about planning, know a bit about lots of things. So, so I, I, I actually encourage you to, to take multiple classes, I guess. Cool. All right, good. Um, if there are no more questions, let's go on to talk a bit about um, machine learning. So, um, all right. So in the remainder of this class, what I'd like to do is um, give a quick overview of uh, you know, the major uh, uh, areas of machine learning and also um, and, and, and also give you a sort of overview of the things you learn uh, in the next 10 weeks. So, you know, wh what is machine learning, right? It seems to be everywhere these days and it's useful for so many places. And, and I think that, um, uh, and, and you know, and, and, I, uh, and I, I feel like, uh, by the way, just to share with you my personal bias, right? You, you read the news about these people making so much money building learning algorithms. I think that's great. I hope, I hope all of you go make a lot of money. But the thing I find even more exciting is, is the meaningful work we could do, right? I think that, you know, I think that every time there's a major technological disruption, which there is now through machine learning, um, it gives us an opportunity to remake large parts of the world. And if we behave ethically in a principled way and use these superpowers of machine learning to do things that, you know, helps people's lives, right? Maybe we could, um, 
maybe you can improve the healthcare system. Maybe you can improve, give every child a personalized tutor. Uh, maybe you can make our democracy run better rather than make it run worse. But I think that um, the meaning I find in machine learning is that there's so many people that are so eager for us to go in and help them with these tools that um, it, it, if, if you become good at these tools, it gives you an opportunity to really remake some piece, some meaningful piece of the world, uh, hopefully in a way that helps other people and makes the world kind of, makes the world a better place. It's very cliched in Silicon Valley. But, but I think, you know, with these tools, you actually have the power to do that. And if you go make a ton of money, that's great too. But I find a much greater meaning in the work we could do. Um, uh, it gives us a unique opportunity to do these things. But um, despite all the excitement of machine learning, what is machine learning? So let me give you a couple um, definitions of machine learning. Um, Arthur Samuel, whose claim to fame was uh, building a checkers playing program, uh, defined it as follows. So field study gives computability learned while being explicitly programmed. Um, and, uh, you know, interesting, when, when Arthur Samuel, many, many decades ago, wrote a checkers playing program, uh, the debate of the day was, uh, can a computer ever do something that it wasn't explicitly told to do? And Arthur Samuel uh, wrote um, a checkers playing program that through self-play learned what are the patterns of a checkerboard that are more likely to lead to a win versus more likely to lead to a loss and learned to be even better than Arthur Samuel, the author himself, at playing checkers. So back then, there was this remarkable result that a computer programmer, you know, that, that could write a piece of software to do something that the computer programmer himself could not do, right? Because this program became better at Arthur Samuel um, at, uh, 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 at, uh, at, at at the task of playing checkers. Um, and I think today we, um, are used to computers or machine learning algorithms outperforming humans on so many tasks. Uh, uh, but it turns out that when you choose a narrow task, like speech recognition on a certain type of task, you can maybe surpass human level performance. If you choose a narrow task, like playing the game of Go, then by throwing really tons of computational power at it and self-play, uh, 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 you can have a computer you know, become very good at, at these narrow tasks. But this was maybe one of the first such examples in the history of computing. Um, uh, and I think this is still one of the most widely cited um, uh, definitions, right? Uh, gives computers ability to learn while being explicitly programmed. Um, my friend Tom Mitchell in his textbook uh, defined this as a well-posed learning problem. Uh, Program set to learn from experience E respect to task T on some performance measure P. If it's performed T as measured by P improves from experience E. You know, and I, I asked Tom this. I asked Tom if um, he wrote this definition just because he wanted it to rhyme. And, and he, 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 he did not say yes, but I, 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 I don't know. Um, but in this definition, the experience E, uh, for, for the case of playing checkers, the experience E would be the experience of having a checklist play program play tons of games against itself. Uh, so you know, computers lots of patience and sit there for days playing games of checkers against itself. So that's the experience E. Uh, the task T is the task of playing checkers. And performance measure P may be um, what's the chance of this program winning the next game of checkers it plays against the next opponent. Right? So, so we say that uh, this is a well-posed learning problem, learning to play checkers. Now, 
within this um, set of ideas of machine learning, there are many different tools we use in machine learning. And so in the next 10 weeks, you learn about a variety of these different tools. Um, and so the first of them, and the most widely used one, is supervised learning. Um, let's see, I wanna switch to the whiteboard. Do you guys know, how do I raise the screen? Oh, like that, okay. So what I want to do today is really go over some of the major categories of uh, machine learning tools and, uh, and, and sort of what you learn in the next, um, uh, by the end of this quarter. So the most widely used machine learning tool is um, today is supervised learning. Actually, let me check, how, how many of you know what supervised learning is? Uh, like a two-thirds, half of you maybe? Okay, cool, let me, let me just briefly define it. Um, here's one example. Let's say you have a database of uh, housing prices, and so I'm gonna plot your data set where on the horizontal axis, um, I'm gonna plot the size of the house in square feet, you know, and then the vertical axis will plot the price of the house, right? And um, maybe your data set looks like that. Um, and so horizontal axis, I guess we'll call this X, and vertical axis, we'll call that Y. So um, the supervised learning problem is, given the data set like this, to find a relationship mapping from X to Y. Right? And so, um, for example, let's say you're fortunate enough to own a house in Palo Alto, right? Uh, uh, and you're trying to sell it, and you want to know how to price the house. So, Maybe your house has a size, you know, of that amount on the horizontal axis. I don't know. Maybe this is a what 500 square feet, 1,000 square feet, 1,500 square feet. So your house is uh, 1,250 square feet, right? And you want to know, you know, how do you price this house? So given this data set, one thing you can do is um, uh, fit a straight line to it, right? And then you could estimate or predict the price to be whatever value you read off on the um, vertical axis. So in supervised learning, you are given a data set with uh, inputs X and labels Y, and your goal is to learn a mapping from X to Y, right? Now, um, fitting a straight line to data is maybe the simplest possible, maybe the simplest possible learning algorithm, maybe the, uh, one of the simplest learning algorithms. Um, given the data set like this, there are many possible ways to learn a mapping, to learn a function, mapping from the input size to the estimated price. And so um, maybe you want to fit a quadratic function instead. Maybe that actually fits the data a little bit better. And so how do you choose among different models will be uh, either automatically or manual intervention will be, will be something we'll spend a lot of time talking about. Now, to give a little bit more um, to define a few more things, this particular example is a problem called a regression problem. And the term regression refers to that the uh, value Y you're trying to predict is continuous, right? Um, in contrast, here is a, here's a different type of problem. Um, so a problem that some of my friends were working on, and, and I'll simplify it, was, was a healthcare problem 
where uh, they were looking at uh, breast cancer, uh, breast tumors, um, and trying to decide if a tumor is benign or malignant, right? So a tumor, you know, sort of a lump in a, in a woman's breast, um, is, uh, uh, can be uh, uh, malign or cancerous um, or benign, meaning, you know, roughly there's not that harmful. And so if on the horizontal axis, you plot the size of a tumor, um, and on the vertical axis, you plot, is it malignant? or not, so malignant means harmful, right? Um, and some tumors are harmful, some are not, and so whether it's malignant or not takes only two values, one or zero. And so you may have a data set um, like that, right? Uh, and given this, can you learn a mapping from X to Y, so that if a new patient walks into your office, uh, walks into the doctor's office, and the tumor size is, you know, say this, can the learning algorithm figure out from this data that, you know, it's probably, well, based on this data set, looks like there's a, there's a high chance that that tumor is um, malignant. Um, so, uh, so this is an example of a classification problem And the term classification refers to that y here takes on a discrete number of variables. Right? So for a regression problem, y is a real number. I guess technically prices can be rounded off to the nearest dollar and cent. So prices aren't really real numbers, uh, uh, you know, but because you probably not price a house at like pi times one million or whatever. Uh, but, so, so, but, but, but for all practical purposes, prices are continuous, so we call them housing price prediction to be a regression problem, whereas if you have uh, two values, the possible output zero, one, we call that classification problem. Um, if you have k discrete outputs, so uh, if the tumor can be um, malignant, uh, or if there are five types of cancer, right, so you have one of five possible outputs, then that's also a classification problem if the output is discrete. Now, um, I want to find a different way to visualize this data set, which is, um, let me draw a line on top, and I'm just gonna, you know, map all this data on the horizontal axis upward onto a line. Um, but, well, let me just show you what I'm gonna do. I'm going to use a symbol O to denote I hope what I did was clear. So I took the two sets of examples, uh, the positive and negative examples. Positive examples is one, negative examples is zero. And I took all of these examples and, and kind of pushed them up onto a straight line. And I used two symbols, I used O's to denote negative examples and I used crosses to denote positive examples. Okay, so this is just a different way of visualizing the same data, um, but drawing it on a line and using you know, two symbols to denote the two discrete values, zero and one, right? So um, it turns out that uh, uh, in both of these examples, the input x was one-dimensional. It was a single row number. For most of the um, machine learning applications you work with, the input x will be multi-dimensional. You won't be given just one number and asked to predict another number. Instead, you often be given uh, multiple features or multiple numbers to predict another number. So for example, Instead of just using uh, tumor size to predict, to estimate malignancy or ben, ma malignant versus benign tumors, 
um, you may instead have two features where one is tumor size and the second is age of the patient and be given a data set. Maybe I'll sit. and be given a data set that looks like that. Right? Where now your task is um, given two input features, so x is tumor size and age, you know, like a two-dimensional vector, um, and your task is given uh, these two input features um, to predict whether a given tumor is malignant or benign. So if a new patient walks in the doctor's office and if the tumor size is here and the age is here, so that point there, then hopefully you conclude that you know this patient's tumor is probably benign, right? Corresponding to O, the, the negative example. Um, and so, what thing? One thing you learn uh, next week is a learning algorithm that can fit a straight line to the data as follows, kind of like that, to separate out the positive and negative examples, separate out the O's and the crosses. And so next week you learn about the logistic regression algorithm, which um, which can do that. Okay. So um, one of the most interesting things you learn about is, uh, let's see, so in this example, I drew a data set with two input features. Um, when I, so I have friends that actually worked on the breast cancer uh, prediction problem, and in practice, you usually have a lot more than one or two features, and usually you have so many features you can't plot them on the board, right? And so for an actual breast cancer prediction problem, my friends are working on this, we're, we're using many other features, such as, don't worry about what these mean, I guess, clump thickness, uh, you know, uniformity of cell size, uniformity of cell shape, right? Um, uh, adhesion, how will the cells stick together? Don't worry about what these means, but uh, if you're actually doing this in an in a actual medical application, there's a good chance that you'll be using a lot more features than just two. Uh, and this means that you actually can't plot this data, right? It's too high dimensional. You can't plot things higher than three dimensional, or maybe four dimensional or something, right? And so when you have a lot of features, it's actually difficult to plot this data. I'll come back to this in a second in learning theory. Um, and uh, one of the things you learn about, so as we develop learning algorithms, you learn how to build um, regression algorithms or classification algorithms that can deal with these uh, relatively large number of features. One of the uh, most fascinating results you learn is that um, you also learn about an algorithm called a support vector machine, which uses not one or two or three or 10 or 100 or a million input features, but uses an infinite number of input features, right? And so, so, so just be clear, if in this example, the state of a patient were represented as one number, you know, tumor size. Uh, in this example, you had two features. So the state of a patient were represented using two numbers, the tumor size and the age. If you use this list of features, maybe a patient is represented with five or six numbers. Uh, but there's an algorithm called the support vector machine that allows you to use an infinite dimensional vector um, to represent a patient. And um, how do you deal with that? And how can a computer even store an infinite dimensional vector? Right? I mean, you know, 
computer memory, you could store one real number, two real numbers, but you can't store an infinite number of real numbers in a computer without running out of memory or process speed or whatever. So, so how do you do that? Uh, so when you talk about support vector machines, uh, and specifically the technical method called kernels, you learn how to build learning algorithms that work with uh, sort of an infinitely long list of features, infinitely long list of features uh, for, for which, which, and you can imagine that if you have an infinitely long list of numbers to represent a patient, that might give you a lot of information about that patient, and so that is one of the relatively effective learning algorithms <coughs> of some problems. Okay. Um, so that's supervised learning, and you know, let me just um, uh, play a video, um, show you a fun, slightly older example of supervised learning. Give you a sense of what this means. But at the heart of supervised learning is the idea that during training, uh, you are given inputs X together with the labels Y, and you're given both at the same time. And the job of your learning algorithm is to uh, find a mapping so that given a new X, you can map it to the most appropriate output Y. Um, so this is a very old video uh, made by um, uh, Dean Pomelo, known for a long time as well on using supervised learning for autonomous driving. Uh, this is not state-of-the-art for autonomous driving anymore, but it, it actually does remarkably well. Oh, and uh, um, as you, uh, you hear a few technical terms like backpropagation, you learn all those techniques in this class, uh, and by the end of the class, you really build a learning algorithm much more effective than what you see here. But let's, let's, let's see this application. Uh, uh, could you turn up the volume if you have that? Are you guys getting volume? Oh, no. Oh, I see. All right, I'll narrate this. Uh, <laughs> so I've been using an artificial neural network to drive this vehicle that uh, was built at Carnegie Mellon University uh, many years ago. And what happens is uh, during training, it watches the human um, drive the vehicle, and I think 10 times per second, uh, it digitizes the image in front of the vehicle. And um, so that's the picture taken by a front-facing camera. Um, and what it does is, in order to collect labeled data, the car, while the human is driving it, records both the image, such as you're seeing here, as well as the steering direction that was chosen by a human. So at the bottom here is the image turned into grayscale and lower res, and uh, on top, let me pause this for a second. Um, this is the driver direction. The font's kind of blurry, but this text says driver direction. So this is the Y label, the label Y, that the human driver chose. Um, and so the position of this white bar, of this white blob, shows how the human is choosing to steer the car. So in this, in this image, the white blob is a little bit to the left of center, so the human is you know, steering just a little bit to the left. Um, this second line here is the output of the neural network. And initially, the neural network doesn't know how to drive, and so it's just outputting this white smear everywhere. It's saying, oh, I don't know, do I drive left, right, center? I don't know. So it's outputting this gray blur everywhere. Um, and as the algorithm learns using the backpropagation learning algorithm or gradient descent, which you learn about, uh, you actually learn about gradient descent this Wednesday. Um, you see that the neural network's output becomes less and less of this white smear, this white blur, but starts to become sharper. 
um, and starts to mimic more accurately the human-selected driving direction. Right? So this um, is an example of supervised learning because the human driver demonstrates inputs X and outputs Y. Uh, namely, if you see this in front of the car, steer like that. So that's X and Y. And uh, after the learning algorithm has learned, um, you can then, uh, well, he pushes the button, takes a hand off the steering wheel, um, and then it's using this neural network to drive itself, right? Digitizing the image in front of the road, taking this image and passing it through the learning algorithm, through the trained neural network, letting the neural network select the steering direction, uh, and then using a little motor to turn the wheel. Um, this is a slightly more advanced version, which has trained two separate models, one for, a, I think, a two-lane road, one for a four-lane road. Uh, so that's the, um, uh, so the second and third lines. This is for a two-lane road, this is a four-lane road, and the arbitrator is, is another algorithm that tries to decide whether the two-lane or the four-lane road model is a more, more appropriate one for a particular given situation. Um, and so, as Alvin is drawing, uh, excuse me, a one-lane road or a, a two-lane road. So it says driving from a one-lane road here uh, toward an intersection. Um, the, uh, the, the algorithm realizes it should switch over from um, I think, I forget, I think the one-lane neural network to the, to the two-lane neural network, or one or three, isn't it? Right. All right. Um, okay. Oh, oh, all right, fine. We'll just see the final dramatic moment of switching from a one-lane road to a two-lane road. Um, uh, and I think, you know, so this is just using supervised learning to take as input what's in front of your car to decide on steering direction. This is not art for how self-driving cars are built today, but, you know, it could do some things in some limited context. Uh, uh, and I think uh, in, in, in several weeks, you'll actually be able to build something that is more sophisticated than this. Right. Um, so after supervised learning, uh, we will, in this class, we'll spend a bit of time talking about machine learning strategy. Or some, or I think on the class notes, we um, annotate this as a learning theory. But what that means is um, I want to give you the tools to go out and apply learning algorithms effectively. And I think I've been fortunate to have, uh, you know, to know a lot of, uh, 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 I, I think that um, I've been fortunate to have, you know, over the years, constantly visited lots of, great tech companies, uh, uh, more than ones that I've, that, that I've been publicly associated with, right? But often, just to help friends out, I visit various tech companies uh, of the sort whose products I'm sure are installed on your cell phone. Uh, but I often visit tech companies and, you know, talk to the machine learning teams and see what they're doing and see if I can help them out. And what I see is that there's a huge difference in the effectiveness of how two different teams could apply the exact same learning algorithm. 
right? Uh, and I think that um, what I've seen sadly is that sometimes there will be a team, uh, even in some of the best tech companies, right? The, 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 the elite AI companies, right? In, in, in multiple of them, where you go talk to a team and they'll tell you about something they've been working on for six months. And then you can quickly take a look at the data and, and hear that they're not, their algorithm isn't quite working. And sometimes you could look at what they're doing and go, yeah, you know, I could have told you six months ago that this approach was never going to work, right? Um, and um, what I find is that the most skilled machine learning practitioners are very strategic, by which I mean that your skill at deciding, um, when you work on a machine learning project, you, all, you, you have a lot of decisions to make, right? Do you collect more data? Do you try a different learning algorithm? Uh, do you rent faster GPUs to train your learning algorithm for longer? Or if you collect more data, what type of data do you collect? Or for all of these architecture choices, use the neural network, support vector machine, logistic regression, which one do you pick? Um, but there are a lot of decisions you need to make when building these learning algorithms. So one thing that's quite unique to the way we teach is uh, we want to help you become more systematic in driving machine learning as a, as a systematic engineering discipline so that when one day you're working on a machine learning project, you can efficiently figure out what to do next. Right? Um, and I sometimes make an analogy to how um, to, uh, uh, to, to, to software engineering. Um, you know, I, many years ago, I had a friend um, that would debug code by compiling it. And then um, uh, this friend would look at all these syntax errors, right? That, you know, C++ compiler outputs. And they thought that the best way to eliminate the errors is to delete all the lines of code with syntax errors. And that was their first heuristic. So that did not go well, right? Um, uh, it took me a while to persuade them to start doing that. Uh, but, 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 but so it turns out that um, when you run a learning algorithm, you know, it almost never works the first time, right? It's, that's just life. Uh, uh, and, and, and the way you go about debugging the learning algorithm will have a huge impact on your efficiency on, on, on how quickly you can build effective learning systems. And I think until now, too much of, the, of this process of uh, making your learning algorithms work well has been a black magic kind of process where, you know, has worked on this for decades. So when you run something, you don't know why it's not working, you go, hey, what do I do? And Ryan says, oh yeah, do that. And then, and then because he's so experienced, it works. But I think um, what we're trying to do with the discipline of machine learning is to evolve it from a black magic, tribal knowledge, experience-based thing to a systematic engineering process, right? And so um, later this quarter, as we talk about machine learning strategy or talk about learning theory, we try to systematically give you tools on how to um, uh, go about strategizing uh, so, so it can be very efficient in um, how, you, how you yourself or how you can lead a team to build an effective learning system. Because I, I don't want you to be one of those people that you know, waste six months on some direction that maybe could have relatively quickly figured out was not promising. Or maybe one last analogy, if, you, um, if you're used to optimizing code, right, making code run faster, not sure how many of you have done that, uh, 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 less experienced software engineers will just dive in and optimize the code to try to make it run faster, right? Let's take the C++ and code an assembly or something. But more experienced people will run a profiler to try to figure out what part of your code is actually the bottleneck and then just focus on attention on that. So uh, one of the things I hope to do this quarter is uh, 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 convey to you some of these more systematic engineering principles, right? And yeah. Oh, and actually, if anyone's interested, uh, this is a, uh, uh, yeah, actually I've been, um, 
I've been, I've been writing, so actually, so, uh, how many of you have heard of machine learning yearning? Oh, just a few of you, interesting. Uh, so actually, to, to, if any of you are interested, um, just in my uh, spare time, uh, I've been writing a book um, uh, to try to codify systematic engineering principles for machine learning. And so if you, uh, uh, and, and so, uh, if you want a you know, free draft copy of the book, sign up for a mailing list here. I tend to just write stuff and put it on the internet for free, right? So if you want a free draft copy of the book, uh, 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 you know, go to this website, uh, enter your email address, and the website will send you a copy of the book. They'll talk a little bit about these engineering principles as well. All right, so, uh, so first subject, machine learning. Second subject, learning theory. Um, and uh, the third major subject we'll talk about is uh, deep learning, right? And so you know, there are a lot of tools in machine learning, and many of them are worth learning about. And I use many different tools in machine learning you know, for many different applications. There's one subset of machine learning that's really hot right now because it's just advancing very rapidly, which is deep learning. And so we'll spend a bit of time talking about deep learning so that you can understand the basics of uh, how to train a neural network as well. Right? Uh, but I think that um, whereas 239 covers a much broader set of algorithms, which are all useful, uh, CS230 more narrowly covers just deep learning. Right? Um, so uh, other than deep learning slash, after, after deep learning slash neural networks, the other, the, the four or fourth of the five major topics we'll cover will be um, unsupervised learning. Um, so what is unsupervised learning? So you saw me draw a picture like this just now, right? And this would be a classification problem, like the uh, tumor malignant benign problem. This would be a classification problem. And that was a supervised learning problem because you have to learn a function mapping from x to y. Um, unsupervised learning would be if I give you a data set like this with no labels. So you're just given inputs x and no y. And you're asked to find me something interesting in this data, figure out you know, interesting structure in this data. Um, and so in this data set, it looks like there are two clusters and an unsupervised learning algorithm, which you learn about, called k-means clustering, will discover this, um, this structure in the data. Um, other examples of unsupervised learning, you know, if, if you, actually Google News is a, is a very interesting website. Sometimes I use it to look up, right, latest news. Uh, this is an old example. But Google News every day uh, crawls or reads, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, many, many thousands or tens of thousands of news articles on the internet and groups them together, right? For example, this is a set of articles on the uh, BP oil well spill, and it has uh, taken a lot of the articles written by different reporters and grouped them together. So you can, you know, figure out that uh, what, uh, BP uh, Macondo oil well, right? that this is a CNN article about the oil well spill, this is a Guardian article about the oil well spill, and this is an example of a clustering algorithm where it's uh, taking these different news sources and figuring out that these are all stories kind of about the same thing, right? Um, and other examples of clustering, just getting data and figuring out what groups belong together. 
um, a lot of work on um, genetic data. This is a visualization of, uh, uh, sort of genetic microarray array data, where given data like this, you can group individuals into different types of, uh, into individuals of different uh, characteristics. Um, or uh, clustering algorithms, grouping the set of data together, is used to um, organize computing clusters, uh, you know, figure out what machines workloads are more related to each other and organize computing clusters appropriately. So take a social network uh, like you know, LinkedIn or Facebook or other social networks and figure out which are the groups of friends or which are the cohesive communities within a social network. Um, or market segmentation. Uh, actually, many companies I've worked with look at the customer database and cluster the users together. So you can say that looks like we're four types of users. You know, it looks like that um, there are the uh, uh, young professionals looking to develop themselves. There are the you know soccer moms and soccer dads. There are the discovery and discovery. So you can then market to the different market segments um, separately. Uh, and 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 actually, many years ago, my friend Andrew Moore. Uh, uh, was using this type of data for astronomical data analysis to group together galaxies. Uh, question? So is all unsupervised learning clustering? Oh, is all learning clustering? Uh, no, it's not. So unsupervised learning broadly is the concept of using unlabeled data, so just X, and finding interesting things about it. Right. Um, so uh, for example, uh, actually here's, shoot. This won't work without audio. We'll do this later in the, cl in, in the class, I guess. Um, maybe we'll see if we can do this later. Cocktail party problem um, uh, is another unsupervised learning problem. Really need audio for this to explain this, though. Um, let me think how to explain this. Uh, you know, cocktail party problem, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do the demo when we can get audio working on this laptop. It's a problem where um, uh, if you have a noisy room and you stick mul multiple microphones in the room and record overlapping voices, uh, so there are no labels. You just have multiple microphones, a mi an array of microphones in a room with lots of people talking. Uh, how can you have the algorithm separate out the people's voices? So that's an unsupervised learning problem because um, there are no labels. You just stick microphones in the room and have it record different people's voices, overlapping voices. You have multiple people talking at the same time and then have it try to separate out people's voices. And one of the primary exercises you do uh, later is if we have, you know, five people talking, so each microphone records five people's overlapping voices, right, because, you know, each microphone hears five people at the same time. How can you have an algorithm separate out these voices so you get clean recordings of just one voice at a time? So that's called the cocktail party problem, and the algorithm you use to do this is called ICA, Independent Components Analysis, and that's something you implement in one of the latest uh, homework exercises. Right. Um, and there are other examples of unsupervised learning as well. Uh, uh, the internet has tons of unlabeled text data. You just suck down data from the internet. Uh, there are no labels uh, necessarily. But can you learn interesting things about language? Figure out what, figure out the, uh, I don't know, one of the best cited results recently was learning analogies, like, you know, a man is a woman as king is a queen, right? Um, uh, uh, or, uh, what uh, Tokyo is to Japan as uh, Washington DC is to the United States, right? To learn analogies like that. It turns out you can learn analogies like that from unlabeled data, just from text on the internet. So that's also unsupervised learning, okay? Um, so after unsupervised learning, oh, and unsupervised learning, so, you know, machine learning is very useful today. 
turns out that most of the recent wave of economic value created by machine learning is through supervised learning. Uh, but there are important use cases for unsupervised learning as well. So I use them in my work occasionally. Uh, uh, and it's also bleeding edge for a lot of exciting research. And then the final topic, final of the five topics we cover. So we talk about supervised learning, um, machine learning strategy, deep learning, unsupervised learning. And then the fifth one is reinforcement learning is this, which is, um, let's say I give you the keys to the Stanford Autonomous Helicopter. Uh, this helicopter is actually sitting in my office. I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of it. Um, and, and I'll see the right program to, to, to make it fly, right? So how do you do that? Um, so this is a video of a helicopter flying. Uh, the audio is just of a lot of helicopter noise, so that's not important. But uh, we'll zoom out the video, just see trees in the sky, right? But so um, you can use learning algorithm. Yeah, that's kind of cool, right? I, I, was the, I was the cameraman that day. Um, but so you can use learning algorithms to get, you know, robots to do pretty interesting things like this. Um, and it turns out that a good way to do this is through reinforcement learning. So, so what's reinforcement learning? Um, it turns out that no one knows what's the optimal way to fly a helicopter, right? If you fly a helicopter, you have uh, two control sticks that you're moving, um, but no one knows what's the optimal way to move the control sticks. So the way you can get a helicopter to fly itself is um, let the helicopter do whatever. Think of it as training a dog. Right? Like how, you, you can't teach a dog the optimal way to behave. But actually, how, how many of you have had a pet dog or pet cat before? Oh, not that many of you. That's fascinating. Okay, so I had a pet dog when I was a kid, and my family made it my job to train the dog. So how do you train the dog? You let the dog do whatever it wants, and then whenever it behaves well, you go, oh, good dog. And when it misbehaves, you go, bad dog. Um, and then over time, the dog learns to do more of the good dog things and fewer of the bad dog things. And so reinforcement learning is a bit like that, right? I don't know what's the optimal way to fly a helicopter. So you let the helicopter do whatever it wants. And then whenever it flies well, you know, does the maneuver you want or flies accurately without jitting around too much, you go, oh, good helicopter. And, and when it crashes, you go, bad helicopter. And it's the job of the reinforcement learning algorithms to figure out how to control it over time so as to get more of the good helicopter things and fewer of the bad helicopter things. Um, and I think, um, well, just one more video. Um, All right, and so again, given a robot like this, I, I actually don't know how to program a, I actually have, you know, a robot like this has a lot of joints, right? So how do you get a robot like this to climb obstacles? So, well, this is actually a robot dog, so you can actually say good dog or bad dog. Um, but by giving those signals, called a reward signal, uh, you can have a learning algorithm figure out by itself how to optimize the reward, therefore <laughs> climb over these types of obstacles. Um, and I think recently, the most famous applications of reinforcement learning have been for game playing, uh, playing Atari games or playing you know, a game of Go, like an Alpha Go. Um, I think that, uh, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, game playing has made for some remarkable stunts, a remarkable PR, but I'm also uh, equally excited or maybe even more excited about the inroads that reinforcement learning is making to robotics applications, right? So I think, uh, uh, I think, yeah, reinforcement has been proven to be fantastic for playing games. It's also getting, making real traction in um, optimizing robots and optimizing sort of uh, logistic systems and things like that. Um, 
So you learn about all these things. Um, last thing for today, uh, I hope that you will start to uh, talk, meet people in the class, make friends, form project partners and study groups. Uh, and if you have any questions, you know, dive on the piazza, ask your questions, also help others answer their questions. So let's break for today, and I look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. Welcome to Tuesday.